Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post. Another week ends, which is sort of like our Christian's grace-infused cosmopolitan guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a moment, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of another weekend's. But first, I had the pleasure of talking this week with Devorah Heitner, the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Great conversation, great book. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Devora, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And you've written this book, ScreenWise, and you are the founder of Digital Natives, right? Yes, Raising Digital Natives. So I'm a huge Howard Stern fan, and like last year, he told this story where his parents are in a diner on Long Island, and they go, Howard, we saw this man in the diner. He was talking to his watch. Do you <laughs> believe it? He's like, yeah, mom, it's an Apple watch. And yeah, it costs like $600. $600! And he was saying how his mom calls the computer the machine. Right. Like, can you can you tell your wife to get on the machine and find the socks your father likes? So like that's like a pronounced example of like what you ta- you would call I think right the digital native versus immigrant. But like we think it's funny when it's like somebody that's maybe in their late eighties or something. But increasingly, right, people that that feel like they're relatively tech savvy feel like t- digital immigrants in their own homes because their kids at like seven or eight are at least more proficient technically sometimes than they are. Well, I think we're all proficient technically in our own ways, but we just we we have kind of microculture so like as a gen xer you know i'm kind of in the facebook and twitter you know microculture but i'm also using it in my own way whereas like a kid might get on twitter and use it totally differently so i think partly like we're using a lot of the same tools maybe as our kids but we're using them in different ways and we have have different ideas about what they're for is it different too because i mean i'm we've have you probably seen like everybody's seen like the 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 videos where a kid like picks up a magazine and they're like two or whatever or three and they're they're hitting it and it's not interactive right you know and so is that i mean is are there brain like is it a different way for your brain to kind of develop when you, you're you now like the norm for kids is to see something that's interactive like and paper looks like the non-normative thing when you're yeah well touch screens are super empowering for little kids because even if you can't read there's a lot you can do with a touch screen whereas you know a laptop is a little bit more frustrating for a pre-literate person i mean there's still some cool stuff you can do but a touch screen is just super empowering i can take a selfie i can make a video you know and i i could be a three-year-old i can't read but i can do a lot of cool stuff there's a lot of great apps that are touchscreens, whether that's a, a smartphone or, you know, an iPad or something along those lines. And so kids, kids love that. And it is, it is super empowering for them. It's a space that they can dive right into. When you got into founding the, the, the digital native kind of movement and, and writing this book, were you a technophile before you became a parent? Was this, were you always a tech person or was this like, okay, I've got a kid now, there's screens everywhere. I've got to like master this to some degree. Well, you know, I was a media studies professor and so I've been studying the history of television. I actually wrote a book a few years ago based on my dissertation on the history of these black public affairs television shows. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about TV. I wrote my master's paper on Sesame Street, but I had been really focused on TV. And that was the predominant medium that I grew up with. Computers were very boring for me when I was a kid. Some of my friends were little hackers and programmers. But for me, the little 
Apple IIe that I wrote my college applications on, you know, it was a tiny little screen, wasn't very exciting. I learned a word process in high school and college, but I was not super into computers. The internet really wasn't that exciting to me until I got email late in college. And then with the internet and listservs, I started to see the potential for building community and also the potential for wasting a lot of time when I bought my first apartment. I remember that was the first time I really experienced the kind of intensity of, you know, looking for real estate on the internet and just looking at pictures of kitchens and other apartments that I wasn't going to be able to afford to buy. And that experience of just kind of like blissing out slash zoning out slash almost like having a, you know, kind of a euphoric drug type experience looking at the internet. So that was really the beginning of kind of understanding that relationship. And that's when I had a huge desktop computer, but I did have home, home internet. It was dial up, you know, so it had all those kind of attendant frustrations, but I would say I was neither a super techie kid. I wasn't the kid who was programming my computer and logo. Uh, Like some of my friends, I wasn't a super gamer kid, but I also did watch a lot of TV and I had no big, you know, beef with tech. I was not a kid who was, you know, like a Luddite, you know, I wasn't building my own, I don't know, building my own tree house or hunting and fishing either as a kid. I wasn't, I wasn't super uh, non-tech. I was just kind of, I think like a lot of kids in the seventies, just watching a lot of TV, spent a lot of time on the couch, you know, and then when we got a VCR, watched a lot of VHS movies with my friends. And I think those were good times in many ways. Uh, But I think for our kids, the, the tech is actually way better. I mean, I think for my kid to be programming in Scratch or making a movie on the iPad is much more interesting than what I could do with tech at his age. Do you remember the first VCR like in your neighborhood? Oh, yeah. And we got one kind of late. You know, so I, I, we got one when I was in seventh grade in 1987. So we were we were pretty late to that party. But yeah, I do remember when somebody got one and we could get movies out and all of that. But we're in the golden age of TV now. So I mean, what do you watch now? I really love The Fosters. And that's a show I would love to watch with a tween or a teen in my life and see what they think about its portrayals of high school. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lovely show. It's a two mom family with a bunch of foster and adopted kids, multiracial family. Very, very interesting show about, you know, all kinds of questions about dating and there's both the the two mom families. So it's, you know, lesbian moms and one of the kids, all these really interesting issues come up. And in some ways it might be a bit much like if I was watching it with a nine or 10 year old, I might be a little too much, you know, because there is some sexuality and other things, but with an older teenager, I think it'd be a really interesting way to have a conversation about some of these issues that kids are talking about, but we as adults, we don't always know how to start a conversation. Like the show brings up all these tough issues. And then you could say, well, what would you do if this was happening to a friend? What would you do if you had a friend who was scared of their boyfriend? Or I think for parents, you know, we think about co-viewing and all the research says we should co-view with our little kids. We should watch what they watch and engage with them about the characters that they're interested in. And that's how they're going to get more out of the media they experience. But we, we don't think about it as much when our kids are older, but a lot of folks really bond with their tweens and teens watching Top Chef or watching, you know, even very, what we might think of as like dumb TV. And I think that that's great. Um, you you talk about how, it's funny because you were talking about the Fosters and, you know, with a, with a tweener kind of watching. You talk about how there are basically, there's research that there are three kinds of approaches to media and screen time and being on the computer, being on iPhones. There's, you have your limiters, right, on one hand, who are sort of like, all right, one hour, you're done, you're off. You have what you call the enablers, right? They're just sort of like, they're laissez-faire, like, you know, it's the Wild West out there, kid, you know, work it out yourself. And then you say, like, what looks like the healthier middle way is the the mentoring approach. Exactly. It sounds like it's not altogether easy to embrace the mentor. It's like just putting up rules or letting kids do what they want. Those sound like easier things, but this is, the. it seems like the healthier thing to learn how to become a digital mentor. Mentoring is absolutely 
absolutely a ton more work than monitoring or than enabling. I mean, enabling, you may not like the results in the long term when your kid, you know, has seen porn when they're in fourth grade or other things, but you may feel it, it, as in the moment, it's a lot easier. And I think I've, I've certainly, even though I, I consider myself a mentor, we've all had moments and I'm having one right now. My kid is homesick and I'm like, all right, kid, what do you want to watch? Right. You know, so there's moments <laughs> where enabling is, it works well for me as a, as a parent. And that's, it's, it's more functional for me than it may be for my kid. And I have to just acknowledge that. I think as parents, we always have to acknowledge like, is this, sometimes I make parenting choices that are about what's best for my family or my kid. And sometimes it's about what's best for me. Maybe I need that extra half an hour of sleep. So I'm going to go with a show that, you know, my kid can watch and probably will be fine. But yeah, I think mentoring is a lot of work because it's an ongoing conversation. I mean, think about mentoring is it never ends. You can set up that limit and, you know, shut down your child's phone at a certain hour. And that may be part of mentoring. But you also need to talk to them about why don't you want to be group texting at two in the morning and what could go wrong and what, what might you do if this or that kind of thing did come up in a group text or in a group game situation. And it, it just it's more it's more exhausting. You have to kind of keep up with what your kids are doing more. You have to be curious about your kids world, even if it initially seems distasteful. You might look at an app and be like, ick. But if all your kids friends are on it, you kind of want to know what it's all about. You tell this story about a parent who like their fifth grader saw something kind of inappropriate for their age at someone else's house and said to their child like if you see that again if you watch that stuff you'll go to kitty jail <laughs> and you kind of talk about how how like some of the times like uh, the words of the apostle paul the law increases the trespass sometimes if you put up it don't step on the grass people want to step on the grass so i mean is that is that part of the limiting problem too like you actually sometimes increase curiosity for things that might not be developmentally helpful by just saying all right no 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 i think that's a great question i mean i think a good example actually would be like the recent presidential debate a lot of people weren't sure if they should let their kids watch the tenor of the conversation has grown quite ugly. There's a lot of inappropriate things that have come up. And I think, again, for me, with a seven-year-old, there was a clear choice of no. But like, say you have a 10-year-old who's asking you or an 11-year-old, they're curious, but you're not sure that this is going to be a positive experience. I think watching with them and if you have to hit pause, if something's making you really uncomfortable, you could pause it. But just engaging with them, like, when is this going off the rails? When does this make you uncomfortable? And experiencing that with your child is probably better than saying, absolutely, you can't watch this thing. And again, if you have a child in middle school and you say you can't watch the presidential debate, well, a lot of their friends will have seen it the next day at school and will be talking about it, depending on the kind of the, the local culture where you live. And so if you choose to not let your kid watch it, they're still going to hear about it. And it better that they hear about it with you and that your values can influence the way that they experience it. And they also have a chance to share any emotions they're having about it with you. So I think what, yeah, we don't want to scare our kids. We want to support them. And we also don't want to scare them so much that they lie to us that the next time they run into some nasty corner on the internet, which can happen really easily, we don't want them to be so scared like, oh, the last time I got in big trouble. So I better not tell anyone. We want them to come to us for support when that happens. Based on what you were saying just a minute or two ago, too, about decisions that, hey, I have to make this decision for me. It sounds like part of the key to like being a good digital citizen uh, and really having a, an open-handed kind of mentoring approach, you can, it sounds like you got to, as a parent, learn to be gracious and kind to yourself. Exactly. And having some forgiveness for for like ambiguity. Because it seems like the, the parents, it, it, it seems so judgy. We're in such a judgmental culture. Why is your kid on the iPad? Or why, you know, you talk about that, you know, in, in your book about people judging, but why is that kid on their screen all the time? Or why? I mean, it, it seems like if you have any hope, you've got to learn to forgive yourself. 
yourself as a parent. I agree with that. And I think, I think we need to forgive other people when things go wrong, you know, and we also just really need to be there for one another's kids. Like it's, you know, and that's what I always say to parents is when another child makes a digital mistake, you know, some child you hear about, like maybe they do make an unkind joke in a group text. We don't want to make that child a pariah because they're still a kid. They're still learning. We, we need to let our kids know, Hey, let that person back into the community. Like they've apologized hopefully, or made some kind of effort to, you know, recover themselves. And when, and same thing with your child, I think we emphasize having a positive digital footprint so much that we're teaching our kids that they're unforgivable when they make mistakes. And none of us are unforgivable, first of all, but we especially don't want children to, to, to feel that if they make a digital misstep, which is inevitable, we all make digital missteps. We all post things we shouldn't at some point or send a text to the wrong person or cause an argument with something we share online or anything like that. We need to help them understand, yeah, you can move forward with grace. You can go to somebody and apologize in person and your friends should let you back in just as you should let them back in when they make a mistake. No, none of us is perfect. And so I think that's super important. And I think for parents to remember not to judge one another, it's so easy to look at another parent who's, you know, parenting while smartphoning and say, you know, oh my goodness, that person is totally inattentive. But you know, their, their parents may be in the hospital or there may be something going on, you know, that's really an emergency for them. We don't know. And, and it may be that they're playing words with friends and we may judge them, you know, but, but it's best if we don't, because we all have, you know, our, our better days and our other days. Yeah. It's weird. Do you think it's weird? Cause on some level, right. We're, we've become a more permissive culture. And yet at the same time, it seems like we're a less forgiving culture. That's <laughs> you know, strange. It seems like a strange co-development together. Well, it's really easy to heap on the shame and the blame when people do make mistakes in the digital realm. And so, you know, a kid tweets something and it doesn't sound so good. It sounds racist or homophobic or intolerant. And maybe they are picking up on something they're hearing in the culture and sharing it. And that's ill-advised. And we want to teach our kids to do better, but we don't want to, you know, heap shame and blame, especially again on children. I mean, I don't, I don't think we should be so, so eager to do that to grownups either, but especially with kids, they're still learning. And I think we really need to create not a judgment free space where we have no standards for what our children express in the public eye, but to teach them, you know, yeah, if you make a mistake, again, you can come back from that. You can reconsider because it's so easy to reshare things and, and hold some, somebody's mistake up to the spotlight because it's so easy to sort of promulgate it, screenshot it, you know, put it, put it up in, in different contexts. I think that makes it, I think, much easier to sit. And also that we're sitting home alone and it's easy to point the finger when we're literally, you know, sitting in our house behind a screen, right? It can really remove empathy. So that's something I say a lot and that I've said in my TEDx and in the book is that empathy is the app, you know, that I work with kids on creating a kindness app or an app to make the internet or social media a nicer place. But ultimately that's, that's on us. We need to remember, hey, there's someone else on the other end of this communication. Do you feel like a lot of like political campaign should just use you as a consultant like you talk about sparkle chat that says do you really want to send this i mean there are some prominent political figures if they just sat down with 30 for 30 minute consult with you maybe they would maybe they would have better political fortunes <laughs> I, I mean i i think we all should think about are you sure you want to send this right and so you're referring to i had i have kids as one of my workshops create an app to make social media or texting nicer and kids in my in a fifth grade class created this sparkle chat app are you that asks you has a little thought bubble before 
before you send? Are you sure you want to send this? And I agree. I mean, that's why when you're running for office, theoretically, you should have a staff and that staff hopefully acts a little bit as your conscience as well and says, hey, are you sure you want to send this? So that that's and and I think the more public you are, the more you probably do want to have a checks and balances on things you share in public. Social media has made it easy for us to share our quickest, less least considered thoughts. And I think we all want to be more considered, you know, the idea of sending multiple drafts, right? And my husband still does this. He'll still sit down and draft an email offline that's important and, and draft it and get it right before he sends it. And I think we don't do enough of that. And that kind of communication is, I think, really, really important. And the more, the higher stakes, you know, the communication, the more we should be considering it before we send it. Yeah, there's something I read in your book that that just blew me away. You share some research that parents are the primary driver of kids' media choices, right, until they're like four years old. And then by the time they're between five and seven, YouTube overtakes parents as the primary influence. Although parents are stronger influence than peers and friends. Eight to ten, YouTube is central to searcher searches and friends are more influential than parents with respect to kids' media choices. By age 11, 15, kids receive more media influence from YouTube than they do from their friend. And search engines and the app store are the most important resources with how they're interacting with the world at least digitally that blows me away that you like like because adolescence right that seems to be it used to be defined by you know peers shaping your reality but youtube is is, is even bigger than an adolescent's peers that is amazing to me one of my good friends just took her son to new york and he really wanted to meet casey neistat so they went to his office which he publicizes on his youtube channel where it is and you know fans go there all the time to meet him and they went and he did actually meet his YouTube, you know, idol. And it was a kind of a life-changing experience for him. He was super excited to meet Casey Neistat. So I think, yeah, these YouTube folks, they're, what's what's so intoxicating about them is unlike a Holly Berry or, you know, someone who's on TV, they're real, but they also feel very accessible because YouTube feels so accessible. And anyone, I mean, you and I could make a YouTube video today. I'm on YouTube. You're probably on YouTube, right? So we all have a presence in this space. So it feels much more democratic. Whereas, you know, obviously being in the movie is something very few of us will experience. So I think for kids, it's this feeling of accessible celebrity. And some of the people, some of the people on YouTube who are doing really well are their age, right? So it's young, other young people. You know, if you're a 16 year old girl and you want to learn about putting on makeup, there's there's another 16 year old girl with a YouTube channel and a million followers who's like, here, let me show you how to put on eyeliner. A book like Augustine's Confessions creates this interior self consciousness in the West, and now that's something you know we couldn't live without. A concept like there's the me everybody sees, and then there's the me, the my inner self, and you know my inner you know conversation and dialogue. But now it's like it's almost like there's a third self, right? There's the inner self, there's this walking around self, but then there's this curated, cultivated digital self that's out there that's related to who I am and yet might not be, I mean, you talk about like the, the performative, towards the end of the book, you talk about the performative nature of social media and people have these carefully curated and cultivated images and, and the whole FOMO, the fear of missing out or, and maybe fear of not measuring up. How, how do parents nurture in an age like this a, a, a sense of self-acceptance that, that's not sort of at the lowest level of the self-esteem movement, you know, where like everybody gets the trophy all the time. For it. But and it's a real genuine right. ability to, 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 to for the kid to learn, hey, you're lovable, the good, the bad, and the ugly, like the whole you. And we don't want our kids to crowdsource their identity. We don't want our kids to only post things that they think other people will like or 
emoji, right? We want people, we want our kids to be authentically who they are. And one of, one of the questions is how old should they be when they get on social media and what, because they're getting on in middle school, which is when their identities are the most in flux and they might be the most likely to try to crowdsource their identity based on what other people think, whether it's their favorite YouTuber or their immediate peers in school and the sort of alpha kids that seem like they are the coolest and know everything. So I agree that that third self, that almost it's like the cloud self. And when we tell kids to have a positive digital footprint, in a sense, we're telling them to be better curators. We're saying don't show the ugly sides, you know, edit the sadness out of your life, edit the insecurity out of your life. We don't want our kids projecting negative things and, and, and ugly things. But we also we sometimes neglect to remind them that everyone else is cropping their lives, too. And so that we must take everyone else's sort of public performance on Facebook in a, in a, in a way with a grain of salt or their public performance on Instagram or Snapchat or Vine or the other places where kids are that they're performing. And so we, we want our kids in a sense to, to know how to perform well, because it's a social competency that we need these days, but we also don't want our kids to get too wrapped up in that or too wrapped up in watching other kids. I, I always ask parents and kids to think about if there's someone you follow whose posts are making you feel more bad than good, if they're making you feel left out or like your own life isn't great, then maybe don't follow them because we really have to think about also what we're taking in, right? We need to think about what we're projecting out, but we also need to think about what's that diet? You know, is there someone you need to hide on your own feed because their their output is not helping you be the best person you can be. It's making you feel terrible. When you were talking about empathy, there's this passage in the book where you talk about sitting down with your kid and say like, okay, why, you know, let's talk about Grand Theft Auto and it, what, what could, why do you want to play? But it's funny because as I was reading that, I was just thinking my wife and I have gotten really into Westworld, right? This mm-hmm. HBO show which is a remake of a 70s film and you know this that's this wild west android ai popular theme park where people can go and shoot people and you know run around the prostitutes and all this thing it's crazy that like this is how popular the show is and it's really like grand theft auto for adults <laughs> right like in real life right and i loved that conversation in the book because that was a, a dad who was religious and they they're a muslim family and he came to me and he said you know my son he's going on sleepovers i know he's going to play this game at other people's homes but the thing that really troubles me about the game is the strip club. That was the thing that really troubled him. He really didn't like the objectification of women in the game. So I guess he felt like his son at 12 was maybe more ready to handle some of the other, you know, morally questionable aspects of the game, but he wasn't sure about that one. So he said, look, we don't want it in our house, but when you play it, and I know you're going to play it at your friend's houses when you go to sleep over, uh, which I thought was a realistic assessment on this father's part and a compassionate assessment, right? A compassionate assessment that at 12, you're probably not going to go to your friend's house and not and abstain from the game that they're all playing, right? You're going to join with them. But he said, but don't go to the strip club. That's that's against our religion. You know, and because this is someone who has had 12 years to really, you know, raise this child and 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 share these values, the kid is probably in a good position to maybe make that choice that the dad wants. And at least the dad has expressed, you know, in his way, like what's important to him. And the son has the opportunity to make a choice based on knowing his father's expressed wishes. So I feel like that was a very healthy conversation and also a healthy compromise for the dad to make to understand, okay, I know you are going to play this game when you're with your friends. I think we have to be realistic with our kids. You know, I've been on Facebook threads with parents in my own community where people say, well, my kid says everyone's on Snapchat, but, you know, in middle school, but nobody's on Snapchat, right? And all these parents chime in and say, my kid's not on Snapchat. And I'm thinking, well, some of your kids probably are on Snapchat. <laughs> you might just not know. And, and, 
and to accept that sometimes um, that's a possibility that our kids are doing something. They may not be um, willfully deceiving us. They may just not have mentioned it, or they may intentionally be deceiving us if we've created, you know, a climate where that's maybe the way that they feel they need to go. So, um, you know, all these parents were kind of congratulating themselves that their kids weren't using this app that they consider to be kind of a naughty app. And in fact, some of their kids may be using the app and, and some of the kids may be using the app appropriately. I mean, that's the other thing is some of them may be using it in ways that are totally innocuous. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because I wonder how much of that, again, is like this sort of insecurity, like I want to feel like a good parent. So I'm so glad I'm willing to sort of be a little naive so I can say that my kid's not on Snapchat. You know, <laughs> it's one of those, you know, it, it, it seems like if, if love, if control is something like the opposite of love, right? I mean, what's the saying? Like, you know, the strongest grip is the open hand. I mean, I, I feel like so, so much of the kind of refrain of your book is like, be not afraid. I mean, you, mm. you have to kind of, as, as your kids are developing, you can't control their experiences. I mean, you have to. So, I mean, how do you give yourself permission to not be afraid? Or how do you deal with, as a parent, like the anxiety and the fear that comes with needing to let kids who are at a fragile point physically and emotionally, you know, find their way? I think honesty really helps. I think being honest with your kid, like, for example, if my kid asks for an app that I don't know about, I can say... I don't know enough about that app. Mama and Papa have to look into it instead of trying to pretend that I know everything. So being honest with my child and being honest with myself when I'm letting him use media in ways that are convenient for me and then being honest with other parents. And I think it can be hard as our kids get older and we want to accord them more privacy. And we're also socialized, you know, we're socially with our with our kids' peers more when they're young, when they were on the playground. And as they get older, we might not know all of their friends' parents. We might not be on the playground anymore. We're dropping them off places. But that's a great time to still go to other people and be like, hey, I, I'm thinking of getting my kid a smartphone. I know your kid has one. How's that going? You know, what, do you, what are some things that have come up? What should I be looking out for? To go like really openly to other people, just like you might go and ask a friend who's really been a, like a wise investor or was really good at starting their own business for advice, you know, and not be ashamed to ask. I think we get embarrassed when we don't know a lot about tech. And there's, I'm not a huge gamer and gaming is not my strongest expertise, even though I've really focused on kids in the digital age. And so when I have gaming questions, there's a couple of gamers, adult gamers in my community that I know I can go to and say, tell me more about this game or tell me what are some of the pitfalls, you know, socially for kids in this game or what are the different modes? Tell me a little bit about that. So you don't, we don't have to know everything. And that's what I really would want to impress on parents who might read ScreenWise or might have questions or might be listening to us right now is to just say, you don't have to know everything. You just have to know enough about your child's experience. You don't need a doctorate in Minecraft or Instagram to know that it feels bad to be, to see a picture of a party you were not invited to. And so you start from your own experience and that's the bridge to your child. But being honest about what you know and don't know, and also being honest about your own experience, I think is, is really helpful. I think when we try to pretend we know everything, we get into a lot of, a lot of trouble. And we also need to trust our, our wisdom and our gut feeling. If your gut feeling is your kid is way too immature to handle having their own wearable, you know, and meeting Howard Stern and having his wrist talk to him, your child may be too immature. You know, you're, you know, this kid pretty well, you know, she or he has been living with you probably, you know, the child's whole life. So sometimes parents are like, well, my kid seems really mature and this seems like a bad idea, but I just feel like I have to. And it's like, well, 
you probably want to trust that that reservation. You seem pretty gracious with yourself. Is it is that hard in the sense of like you're the one that started the digital natives? You're the one that like wrote screenwise. Like you should have the answers. I mean, is it is that? I mean, how do you? I mean, do you feel like pressured in that way ever? Do people have expectations on you that are like abnormal for a parent? My husband does. <laughs> Sometimes my son, our son, will ask us a question, and my husband will say, "Well, it seems like you know, Mama wrote a book on that topic, so maybe that's a good." question for mama is, can you do that or not? Right? <laughs> you know, or well, we have a, a screen wise expert in the house. So let's ask her. I mean, he's obviously joking and um, neither of us really feels like an expert. I think, I mean, the fact is I'm really open with other parents who ask for parenting advice that my own family has had professional help for different things. Like when we've struggled with behavior issues with our son, we brought in a social worker to help us figure out some good parenting choices. I don't think any of us um, necessarily has all the answers. I, the way, the way that I was raised is not necessarily a model that I would go back to. And I think a lot of us feel that way. So to me, and when people ask me for questions where I feel like they really need some support, I'll ask them like, what is your support? Do you have groups, you know, a group in your religious community or social community? Do you have a therapist you can lean on or ask questions? Because if you're feeling desperate, I've had parents tell me, for example, that my kid gets almost violent when I try to take away their phone uh, or their device. And I'm scared to ask for the device back because my kid seems explosive. To me, that's a situation where it's not really a tech issue. It's it's a family issue. Uh, and that's a family that may need some help. And it may not be long term, but you may need someone to come in and help you kind of parent your way out of that situation. You may have kind of got yourself into a corner. So I hope that I have grace. But I think a lot of times I, I have big questions about parenting. So I think the whole idea of being an expert at something as difficult and ever changing as parenting is pretty funny to me. I don't think any of us are experts. I mean, I have some friends who I steal a lot of great ideas from. <laughs> so We had a couple on the podcast a few weeks ago who had this tragic story where they, they wrote about it for a magazine and they they their oldest son was diagnosed at like 19 or 20 as a sociopath i mean and, and there's and you know the tragic thing was like the play and they'd struggled with it with him, him you know his whole you know life they have four kids and the, the tragic thing is like for them like a religious community like the church was the worst place for them yeah in the sense of everybody was so judgmental I, that's it's, it's such a challenge right whether it's religious communities or just you know your civic social communities sometimes like you it's it can be really threatening to ask for help because you don't know that anybody's going to be sympathetic or they're you know like everybody's trying to convince them everybody's trying to look like it's the instagram self-curation right i want to look like i don't need help and so i think it's incredibly powerful that you're able to be honest about your limitations because that it, it's it strikes me as a, a gracious invitation to other for other people to do that i think as parents we all need to to reach out and um you know and i know you talk to my my colleague and friend, Danya Rutenberg about this. I mean, you know, reach out to God if that works, you know, for you in the moment, reach out in prayer or reach out to, you know, for a lot of secular or agnostic people I know, like reach out to your friends, your community, but, but definitely to people who are compassionate. If somebody's mean, I mean, don't reach out again to them. Obviously that's not the right, the right choice. So I think it, it is absolutely about, and, and I think the problem is some of us are reaching out on social media and I don't think that's what social media does best. I've seen some parenting groups where you know, moms who haven't slept in three days with a new baby or things like that reach out in a parenting group. And sometimes you'll get a really soft answer and it can be supportive. And it's, sometimes it's better than nothing or it's all you have time to do. But I actually think social media is not always the greatest. What, when you want to think about who your true friends are, I always tell kids and adults to think about this too, is not how many followers do you have or friends in a social media, but who would be at your home if you were in crisis? Who would take your children and bring you dinner? 
you know, and that's for most of us, we could probably count those people on one hand, you know, if we're lucky to have those people at all in our lives. But for most of us, we can count them on one hand. It's a small number of our core, you know, inner circle that would really be there for us in a crisis. But that's who your friends are. And and, and I think it gets very confusing if you have, you know, 3000 Twitter followers and 5000 Instagram followers, but we really mostly only have a couple of true friends. And I think being a parent stretches that too, because honestly, you don't have as much social time to really maintain your own relationships. But I, I do think it's, it's crucial. Um, yeah, we, we need to support each other. And that's, I mean, if you see something too, with your ch- kids, friends, that maybe they're getting into some trouble, that's where you really want to be there. And sometimes you want to be there as that adult. I mean, everyone's always eager to call another adult in, but sometimes you, if you know that kid, I, you could talk directly to them and say, Hey, I'm pretty worried about what I saw you posting. Can we talk? Demora, thanks for talking with us. And I and your friends, there's you know, like uh, the handful that you know all, any of us have. Or they, I, I'm I'm sure they're pretty lucky to ha- count you Aww. as a friend because you make a pretty sensitive and empathetic person. And thanks for this great book. I'm not a parent, and I really enjoyed it. Thank and you. And everybody, all of our listeners, buy Screenwise: Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. You get it on Amazon, wherever books are sold. Anything else you want to plug, Demora? Shamelessly. Uh, you can visit my website at Raising Digital Natives. To read my blog and to share questions with me if you want to contact me directly. And just remember that as parents, they may have tech savvy, but you have wisdom. So feel feel good in your wisdom and know that you can be there for your kids in the digital age. Thanks so much. Welcome, everybody. This week, I had a major realization as a Gen Xer that my whole life can be summarized by most of Green Day's songs. And with that happy note, which I and the terrible thing is, I'm not even embarrassed about it. I come to you once again with my friends, David, once more into the breach. David's all the animating force of the zeitgeist of all that is mocking Zen energy in Charlottesville. What's happening down there? Well, I want to listen to Dookie right now is what's really happening as, as we talk. And, and, you know, I want to listen to those really long songs off of American Idiot. I just listened to that whole album yesterday. Homecoming. What a great song. So good. And she's number something in your programs, whatever, but number one in all of our hearts. <laughs> and someone I admire deeply, mm. Sarah Condon from Houston, Texas. What's going on in Houston? Hey, guys. Not much, you know. It's Friday. Are you going to Zumba today? No, 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 no Zumba today. I'm doing bar class today. Yes. What is that that like? Do you have, do we need to call it? Do you have a problem? (laughs) Like 11 11 o'clock at bar class? So it's, uh, like, I may be pronouncing it wrong. It's B-A-R-R-E. So it's like, it's like fake ballet. Like bar. Yeah. Yeah, it's really hard and not nearly as fun as Zumba, but whatever. So, I'll, yeah, I'll do that later today. Yeah. Do you know what Blackbeard's major was in college? What? Art history. Nice, <laughs> man. Nice. That's like the worst joke. I heard it at a poker game like seven years ago, and I, it, I still think it's funny. I got to teach my five-year-old that joke. He would love that joke. Mm. You know what Blackbeard died of? What? Hardened of the arteries. Yeah, I'm teaching him that. He'll love that. Yeah, yeah dude. When, when I see Neil, he and I can make <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, 
Also, we should note before we get into things that the uh, Rock and Roll uh, Hall of Fame nominees are out, and Journey's on there. Yes, as is Pearl Jam. Huh? As is Shaka Khan and Janet Jackson. Wow. <sighs> if only Michael were alive to see this happen. David, I thought you would lead in that Mr. Music book, but uh, I'll just have to keep. I'm not, I'm I'm doing the, the part of the show for the young people, <laughs> for the kids, for, for the, the kids. kids, for the kids who love the Janet Jackson. Give me a beat. Now let's move into uh, you know the adult stuff, art history, art history. <laughs> well, David, tell us about art. Well, we have a, a a really delightful article from Hannah Gadsby, who's an Australian comedian. Uh, who's writing for The Guardian about why I love the Arnolfini portrait, one of art history's greatest riddles. And um, she mentions at the beginning the Arnolfini portrait is one of these, is done by Jan van Eyck in 1432. And a lot of people say, oh, I don't know that. It's not the Mona Lisa. It's not, you know, the David or something like that. But most people actually have seen the Arnolfini portrait. And the second, I mean, I I didn't recognize it by name. And then the second I saw it, and we'll have a link up in uh, The Week Ender. But um, I can describe it to you. I'll describe it to you the way she describes it because she's got it a, a great way with words. She says, two figures stand in a small room with a bed and a window. They pose formally, and even by painting standards, they are very still. On the left, a man stares ahead wearing a weighty coat and a hat that somehow manages to look serious at the same time as it looks like something that one of the Mario brothers might use to power up. <laughs> well, I will point out here that he looks uncannily like Vladimir Putin in a fancy dress. That may ruin the painting for you. And, you know, he actually – he really does look like Vladimir Putin in a fancy dress or some kind of uh, – Wrong. <laughs> some kind of uh, uh, vampire. And then, uh, oh, that one, people always say. The one with the pregnant lady wearing that heavy green dress. They are right about one thing. The dress looks equal to the task of curtaining a large bay window. But they are wrong to assume the woman is pregnant. Not only did Van Eyck have a habit of painting women to look like they were with child, even when they were without, but it was also fashionable at the time to look pregnant when you were not. <laughs> Faking the harvest to attract the seeds, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> it's untidy logic, but still makes more sense than thigh gap. Such a great uh, line. And then she, but but the real reason she's writing is she says that one of the champions of art history is Erwin Panofsky, and his greatest contribution to the field is his analysis of this Arnolfini portrait in 1934. And he argued very persuasively that the portrait was not just a work of art, but a legal document, that it was a wedding certificate of the couple in the painting. And uh, he did such a thorough job that with it, he ushered in a new era of art history. He suggested that the world was both knowable and solvable. And uh, what happens is it, it turns out that the couple um, was married 13 years before this painting. Uh, somehow the discovery was made. They were married 13 years before this painting was 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 painted. And so that his entire uh, theory, his airtight, beautiful theory, completely fell apart. Um, and uh, Gadsby sort of – this is sort of the gist of her thing. She said, I felt sad, quite sad and foolish when I first found out that Panofsky's knowable little world had fallen apart. But eventually I was relieved to assume that a work of art has singular meaning is as arrogant as assuming that every person experiences the world in the same way as you. Now, I, I mean, this is me talking, but I think uh, it's a very funny and charming piece about a very creepy painting. Um, and maybe she does she does get at something that, that there is – we cannot know absolutely ever what an artist uh, piece of art means because it sort of takes on a different meaning 
when it when you're when it's viewed. I, I think maybe she's suggesting a little bit that there's no way to know what anything uh, means, and I don't I don't think that's uh, we would ever go as far as that. But I I really love her self deprecating, sort of grown up <clears throat> humorous take on. Uh, knowability and the problems involved in interpretation. I mean, this reminded me, it reminded me a lot of seminary and that, you know, the, the classes we would take, Oh gosh, you guys are going to have to help me because I had a lot of morning sickness in seminary and just didn't give a damn. Um, but there were (laughs) you too, but like, you know, where you would go through and you would say, which voice, like you would literally read the scripture and you would say, well, this, this belongs to like this line and this belongs to this line. And do you, do you know what I'm talking about, Scott? Like I'm not source criticism. Q. Oh my god! The M source, the L source, the physics of seminary. Like I was just like, "What are we doing?" And it, it, but it was this sense that like we can pin everything down. It's all knowable. We can, you know, like we can, we can like know everything about this. And um, oh, it just it was such a bummer. Mm. It's almost like a challenge to prove it wrong. Yeah, that's completely what it felt like. It's com- yeah. Well, I remember having a professor in. The first semester of Old Testament, and he got up and he said, you know, that the the suffering servant, you know, you read all these suffering servant passages around Christmas, and it, it has nothing to do with Jesus. And he was like the authoritative voice in the room. And, and people started to weep, you know, it was like he his whole goal was to sort of um, make a, a firm statement, a statement that no one could argue with about what this was. And I don't know. Yeah, Wrong. It, <laughs> Wrong. <exactly. laughs> People go into biblical studies academically because they really get off on saying what you think that means, it doesn't mean. Like people go into like systematic theology because they get off on saying this is what you should believe. Like people, diff- you know. Right. People, Isn't that know. why people go into uh, blogging? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. Exactly. So first of all, I think the greatest thing about this whole thing, which Sarah, I assumed is why you sent it first is like, you know, somebody asked Lindy if she was pregnant at work. <laughs> And she's like, no, those are just tacos. I had a big lunch. So like, so just the number one thing that this painting could teach us is if you ever think a woman's pregnant, let her tell you. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Don't ever ask. Uh, so, and my wife, for those of you who don't see is, is not, uh, you know, she's a very attractive and she's not large. She's that's a small lady. What are you lady. Say? She's <laughs> a small she's lady. Spelt. She's spelt. She's We've not, let, so, let us say she doesn't look remotely pregnant. Not there at all. Yeah. By the way, I think I do have a thigh gap, but um, oh my god, uh, I'm serious. I was like, do I have a thigh gap? But uh, and I don't know if I should. But you shouldn't. Th- <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going directly to lunch. Um, so the other thing I think that's really interesting about like the spectra of relativism, right? Like uh, I think David Bentley Hart talks about this in his wonderful, big, uh, hairy, audacious book, The Beauty of the Infinite. Like Nietzsche says, you know, truth is just a metaphor. It's just, you know, you say bride, then you think woman, white, and you're just like, you know, like truth is just like things we attach to images and metaphors and things and hard is like well, of course if god is trinitarian we'd, we'd assume reality is that way so if the if the if the father the source of all being can't be the father without getting his being from the son and sharing it in the spirit then we should assume that like there's no one perspective and that's not a problem mm. it's part of the beauty of existence mm. it's mm. like stanley harawas says you know like mainline protestants are the kind of people that say all right how do I get in this church? What's the minimum I have to believe to get in? Whereas, you know, traditional Roman Catholics say, look at all these neat things I get to believe. So, you know, <laughs> that's part of the beauty of plurality. 
and I try to explain When I do, he turns away again It's always been the same The same old story From the moment I could talk I was ordered to listen There's a way Let's move on to parenting about which I know so, so much. Yeah, there's a really, I thought this is fascinating uh, article in New York Times Magazine this week called The Anti-Helicopter Parents Plea, Let Kids Play Melanie Thurn- by Melanie Thernstrom. And it's, a, it's actually a profile of a guy named Mike Lanza out in Silicon Valley who wrote a book and sort of coined a term called Playborhood, uh, sort of to describe the kind of environment he wanted for his kids. Uh, he clearly hasn't listened to Sarah's story about abduction but it's uh it's uh it's it's i i really resonated with it as if he's got three sons and i'm I'm the father of three sons now uh he says think about your own 10 best memories of childhood and chances are most of them involve free play outdoors mike is fond of saying how many of them took place with a grown-up around i remember that when grown-ups came over we stopped playing and waited for them to go away but moms nowadays never go away and uh you know i by the way just in their defense, I'll say that there are a lot of helicopter dads out there as well. But he says, central to Mike's philosophy is the importance of physical danger, of encouraging boys to take risks and play rough and tumble or inflict a scrape or two. And um, he says that m- most moms are not inclined to leave their children's safety up to chance. You can see why this is sort of a slightly controversial guy and makes it for a great profile. But then he sort of talks about um, his own journey with his kids and uh, that when they move to a better house uh, in an upscale development from, from when he was a kid, when he was in seventh grade, they moved to a better house and the fun ended. And he found himself up against the fact that in America, the ethos of wealth and the ethos of community are often in conflict. And part of what the wealthy feel they are buying is privacy and the ability to be choosy about with whom they socialize. And, um, you know, then, then he gets into what I think is they, they get, or the Melanie really talks about uh, what it's like in Silicon Valley. Cause we've talked on the website about the suicide clusters and the terrible things going on in Palo Alto and especially where kids are never allowed to be kids. She says, just as Silicon Valley leads the way in smartphones, Silicon Valley parents think they should be producing model kids, optimized kids, kids with extra capacity and cool features, kids who have startups or at least work at one, do environmental work in the Galapagos, speak multiple language, demonstrate a repeatable golf swing, or sing arias. To a comical extent, parents here justify the perverted ambition through appeals to research while ignoring research on the negative effects on children being micromanaged. He says, look, there's always a power struggle between children and adults, Lanza says. One way to see the present is that children have been decimated. It's not good for children that adults have so much control over them. And he, they, they, Melanie herself is clearly conflicted about this and um, uh, you know, sees Mike as an extreme but also maybe slightly helpful influence in her own neighborhood where the kids do seem to be having a lot of fun and playing outside and no screens and uh, and she repeats the research that suggests that students with controlling helicopter parents are less flexible and more vulnerable, anxious, self-conscious, as well as more likely to be medicated for anxiety, depression. Uh, similarly, children whose time is highly structured, crammed with lessons and adult supervised activities may have more difficulty in developing their own uh, executive function capabilities, the ability to devise their own plans and carry them out. Uh, and then he talks, you know, free play is really what is missing here. Mike says he often feels alienated when talking to other parents 
parents, the common currency of conversation, rather than sports, politics, or weather, is the achievements of your children. I have exactly nothing to say in these conversations, Mike says. Am I going to brag that my kids are jumping on their trampoline or went to the store by themselves? Parents don't measure themselves according to their kids' independence, as they used to, but according to accomplishments. To me, that's how I part of judge myself. And then the reactions to Mike in the neighborhood are mixed. And of uh, now, I'm dying to hear what Sarah would have to say about this because uh, I have plenty of my oh own my thoughts. Gosh. Well, I kind of hate this guy, and then I also kind of want to hang out with him, which I think is sort of what the writer describes. Like, was that um, what you said after your first date with Josh yeah, in the no. cargo shorts? <laughs> No, I didn't. I was like, how fast can I marry this man? So I, it was interesting, the analysis of um, overprotective moms who are um, allowed to dominate passive dads. Um, cause that's hot. I'm just not sure that's accurate. I mean, I feel like all parents are like, I, I mean, I just don't know a lot of dads who are like, let them fight it out. I mean, I'm definitely not married to that guy. Like, I'm married to a guy who is like right there with me and being sort of freaked out by everything for our kids. Um, I also, this Mike guy, like, must have had a very, I mean, he did have a char- charmed childhood. He just doesn't have family from the rural South. That's all I can think when I read it, because, like, we lost kids to drowning, to overdose, to that thing you get where you cut yourself and you haven't been vaccinated, tetanus or whatever. Like, we have all that in our family history. Like, you know, I, I just... I think it's sort of privileged to to think of childhood in this way. I don't think it exists in this way anymore. And then there were things I really agreed with, like the assessment. I, I think it was the writer's assessment, but this idea that because, you know, I, you know, I limit whatever. We don't do screens a lot in our house. And so um, so we make up. So like this idea that you you have a need to make up for that like what do we do with them well you know we'll put them in soccer practice and we'll have piano lessons and we'll you know because we've got to fill that time and how difficult it is and in some ways impossible for a household where parents both work full-time jobs how difficult it is to just let your kids play and Mm. to let them figure it out i mean i think so many of our friends um mom and dad work full-time jobs. Kids get dropped off at 7.30 in the morning. They get picked up at 5.30 at night. And it's really hard to sort of put together this utopia this guy has imagined. So, and, Mm. but it's not without value. Yeah. I mean, I I do see more of what he's talking about in terms of the passive dads and um, like ladies with real huge amounts of college degrees and high powered, extremely smart who are then using that on their, who are like using all of their uh, resources to manage their kids' lives and fathers who are sort of afraid of, of getting it wrong. I mean, I know it certainly describes uh, some of the patterns he's, I, I got to say, strike close to home because, you know, it's my wife's, you know, she's an incredible mother, but, you know, I'm the one encouraging the kids to jump in the pool mm-hmm. uh, and swim and letting them sort of go under. Mm-hmm. And she's the one, stop doing that. And I think that the kids need both, you know, as politically well, incorrect as that says, sounds. To, like I, To be fair, like with you and Kate, Kate is, she's, it's sisters right? She's a sister. Yeah. And you're three boys. And I think, you know, that's your family history. And I think that has like a huge, I do. So is it funny that Paul Zoll's memoir and David's could both be called My Three Sons? Yeah, but I do. I think that has a lot of, I think, you know, I think where we come from has a huge impact on sort of how we, I don't know. I think that. But I, I do, I do think that the physical, the physical danger thing when I was a kid, um, and I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, you, we get into hot water if we throw too much gender on it, but like, 
for me personally, it was a big deal. Like it was, I liked climbing and doing all these mm-hmm. things and I, my kids certainly really love it. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I see, you know, you have the, the mama bear kind of thing and you have the, the, the just buck up and get out there kind of kid. And both, both there, you know, j- just as there's a, uh, a, a perverse element of the fatherhood, you know, just walk it off, son. You know, there's also a perverse element of the never let my kid out of my sight and never let him sort of do anything. And so I, I don't know how, I don't know. I'm oh obviously, gosh. we're not perfectly parenting, but I, I wonder if he's describing that we, we are experiencing a swing back in the overly protective, prohibitive. But, you know, it's, it's, it's again, like as a modern parent, it's like you can't, you know, you can't, the kids can't play outside if no other kids are playing outside. You know, that, can, that's can what I he just describes. Say, can, I, can I just say I love the fact that we referenced my three sons? And you just said, we get into hot water if we try this. And then I'm waiting for somebody to say, geez, the guys are giving me the business, speed. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's become the 50s hour here on the Mockingcast, sponsored by Alcoa. That's right. Yeah, I, um, I don't know. I, I struck, It was so weird to read this this morning because my husband and I were having this conversation last night. And what you're saying about like the father being like, get out there. And that's just not – that's not Josh. Like I'm like, our kids are doomed because we're both like nerdy and anxious. Yeah. Um, and we were talking about this last night because we keep hearing these stories. This is dark. So just heads up, everybody. <laughs> but we keep hearing these stories about these kids that are at sleepovers and somebody has a phone. Like we heard one just the other day about this group of like seven or eight year old girls that were at a sleepover and somebody had a phone and they looked up pornography. And we've heard another story about that happening with a group of five year old boys and that's what terrifies me. Honestly, it's it's the physical stuff is one thing, but it's it, and that that he didn't address at all. Like I'm like, I mean, it's it's great that they're all outside. I keep thinking, did any of these kids have a cell phone like in their you know in their pocket? So yeah, Devora Heitner has a lot to say about this that I think is helpful in her book Screenwise. I feel like a product placement person in a movie. Like here's I'm if people that can't see. I'm holding up the book what's well, it's a it's a really uh it, I, I definitely did think that i did want to go play at that house by the way I, yeah. I want, and i think most people and she even sort of says that she kind of liked playing there but then she was like but we're never going back <laughs> i mean the, the conflictedness well, they're on the roof. like but they're the, on the roof i know like, the conflictedness about it also mirrors some of our conflictedness about men like I think that that's and and oh. as a guy who's raising three boys and you see yeah. all the statistics of boys suffering and them needing yeah. to get outside and more recess yeah. and, and or less recess, you sort of like well I think um let this guy have his uh, and we we I'm sort of fortunate enough to live in a in a in neighborhood where we do have a little bit of this going on. Mm-hmm. Um, though you know then she mentions and then and then our sign is broken as a as you know as a as a my husband's like well that's what happens when kids play in the street. <laughs> oh yeah, because the sign got hit by a car. About yeah. Yeah. It's not it's, simple, and it's definitely not as simple no. as sort of just asserting yourself here because the, you have to deal with other parents. That's what I've, yeah. I think most parents are actually really dealing with is not so much their own kids as they're dealing with the expectations and uh, judgments of other parents who, are, who who they'll step in with your kids if you don't. And that's, that's more traumatizing for the kid than uh, – anyway, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I really encourage people to read both – this guy's thoughts and uh, her response to them and how yeah. it's sort of – he's clearly there's something off with the way kids are being raised and uh, the way they're getting so anxious and so uh, so many mental health problems. And maybe he's overcorrecting in the opposite direction, but 
this guy seemed pretty magnetic, and his wife sounded like a, a kind of a saint, frankly. Uh, what is her name? She's like, I just want my kids. She was a first generation Chinese immigrant. She's like, I just want my kids to have more fun than I did because I had a miserable <laughs> childhood of just be, having to work all the time. Right. And, and uh, Silicon Valley Mi- also. Wow. Misery comes in many, many, many forms. It does. Uh, it, it's funny. Uh, Mark Oppenheimer, friend of the show, told a story in Unorthodox about one of his daughters who's like bookish and probably the shyest one, but it's the one that like once she does anything, she can perfect it. Like she picks up a musical instrument, she reads books in the corner of the house all day, and she said, and she took golf at PE, and now she wants to play golf. And she, what I worry about is she probably could become a professional golfer. And then what does that say? And then Leah Leibowitz, another friend of the show, says, "What are you afraid next week she'd be like, Dad? Can we walk around New Haven and mock the poor?" <laughs> so at some level, right? Like we're all, I guess, like let me just say, by the way, uh, for the record, I think I would have been a better person if either of you would have been one of my parents, but. Oh, that's sweet. But uh, Devorah in her book says that there, you know, she talks about the playpen versus the playground. Uh-huh. And I think so much of how you interpret Christian faith is all about Augustine and Irenaeus. And on some level, there's a great book, which isn't written by an Episcopalian called... What? We don't write good D- books. It's called, it's called The Eschatological Economy, Time and the Hospitality of God by Douglas Knight. It is a fabulous mm. book. And he's not an anti-Augustinian, but he says, you know, part of the problem is we there's two ways you can read Genesis 3. Like things were perfect before that. It was a golden age. And then the fall and then there's a repair operation. But Irenaeus thought, like, even without the fall, there need to be human maturation. And on some level, I think God at least is, I mean, you know, God makes a playground versus a playpen. I mean, that humanity has to find its way. And that includes awful things that we do to one another, to ourselves, and to the playground that we've been gifted. Mm. So I, so we should read as much Irenaeus as we do Augustine. And I'm a big Augustine fan, but that's not a, it's not a diss on St. Augustine. It will be a great day when Augustine is read and rejected for positions he actually held. <laughs> I wish I was home where my thoughts are skipping home where my music's playing home where my love lies Silently for me. <laughs> now let's funny. talk dating. Everybody loves dating. Mm. Yeah, here we go. Um, why is dating in the app era such hard work? By Judith Shulovitz, who is uh, someone we've written about quite a bit on the website. And uh, she's always good for some thoughtful commentaries. This is in The Atlantic. Uh, and it's really uh, kind of putting two books in conversation with another, with one another. Um, Moira uh, Weigel or Weigel's um, *Labor of Love*, which is like a history of dating, and then Emily Witt's book *Future Sex*, both of which sort of just look at how um, you know dating and sexual mores have kind of shifted, and. Um, they both seem to um, – there's a lot of commonalities and a lot of differences, but I'm going to read to you what Shulovitz says that uh, – or that dating used to be sort of a – this is Weigel's book, which traces the history. It used to be a time-limited means to an end, meaning you were looking to get married and you were trying to find a, an eligible person. Today, dating is often an end in itself. I, uh, I think that, that we can sort of agree with that no matter what. And this is a lot of this, by the way, if those – I wish uh, we were able to broadcast Kleinenberg's session from the New York conference because so much of it's covered in that but um 
there's the observation that if you're one of the many who have used an online dating service and more than a third of, of the single people in America have, you know how quickly dating devolves into work, that it becomes like an unpaid internship is how uh, Weagle talks about it. Now, I don't – I feel like I, I was spared this and I would, I dated in the pre-app era. Um, but, uh, you know, it's – it's uh, I think it's very – from what I hear about it, it, it just totally freaks me out. So maybe this 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 podcast today is channeling my inner, you know, reactionary or something. But um, Emily Witt in her future, she's even more uh, plaintive. She said, I had not sought so much choice for myself, speaking of contemporary sexual mores. And when I found myself with total sexual freedom, I was unhappy that both of these ladies begin their projects feeling, quote, lonely, isolated, and unable to form connect the connections we wanted. They sort of both are coming at from the same way that romance today seems like doomed. And they, they talk about how it was, and, uh, some of this seems to be the fact that romance has been decoupled from uh, commitment, um, or that's, that's uh, undeniable. I loved how they described um, dating has morphed into improv, sort of where two people have different scripts and they get together and they try to act to make the best of it they can. But they say that, ba- that essentially the sexual revolution, uh, the kind of more egalitarian, at least in theory, uh, view has uh, both of them agree that it hasn't made matters easier for women. If anything, today's sexual norms favor men. Women must cope with two intense time pressures to make a good impression in a matter of seconds and to pair off before the biological timer runs out. Now more than ever, they have to discipline their bodies and restrain their longings to avoid being quote too fat, too loud, too ambitious, too needy. Um, both of them are sort of looking for uh, an empowered version of uninhibited sexuality. Uh, and it seems like they're having a hard time finding that. And no one seems, they're not willing to maybe, you know, look at the premises here, but um, the, the free love she, that both of them find is actually rarely free. That there's always a cost being paid by someone. And that um, I think that they talk about women shouldering more of the uh, emotional attachment costs and that that's sort of being true across the board. Um, it's her advice, their advice for today's daters, uh, this is Weigel, is to embrace the fact that dating is indeed a transaction that involves work. Only then can they focus on making the change that counts, approaching romance not as a consumer but as a would-be producer. What would they produce? Care. And this is a quote from Weigel. Um, Love consists of acts of care you can extend to whomever you choose for however long your relationship lasts, is what she reminds her uh, readers. Yes, care involves as much labor as pleasure, but it's the best kind of labor there is. No, it's a deeply troubling, that's a deeply troubling uh, to understand or definition of love. Uh, and I can't wait to hear what Scott, you and Sarah have to say about it. Uh, but it's a kind of a deeply troubling book about dating. And I know that the commitment thing is, is become very difficult. And I was just watching a show, uh, Insecure on HBO, and it's all about dating apps and how, how, um, incredibly complicated that world has become and, and, um, how people are just generally growing up later than they ever have. The emerging adulthood is, is, you know, people are getting married on average, I think six years later than they would even 30 years ago. Um, this seems to be making for a uh, free-for-all that is ultimately paralyzing and wounding and in a way that, um, you know, they're, they're sort of saying, oh, we're still in transition. We're going to find this healthy new cultural moray uh, after we've sort of completely untethered ourselves from traditional conventional norms, which um, 
that sounds overly optimistic given the what they actually describe here. Uh, but then again, maybe I'm one of the nostalgic people that um, – uh, it's not like I view dating as ha- having been all that fun anyway. It's just a, it- I'll tell you how we'll solve the, the problem. We put Sarah in a 24-hour streaming radio advice thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dating advice. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, was, yeah. That's, that's the solution. Go for it, Sarah. What do you think? Oh, I don't, It's such a mess out there. My brother is uh, quite a bit younger than I am. He's in his 20s, and he's in New Orleans. <laughs> and he's a good-looking guy, and he's super bright. Does he ask you for dating advice? He he does some. He's he's got his he's so bright. He's got his master's in sociology, and you know he's a go getter. And he's just kind of like giving up on the whole scene. Like he's literally started a nonprofit to feed homeless people with crockpots in New Orleans. <laughs> like that's what he does instead of date. Like it's brutal. I mean, this isn't anything that I haven't said to my husband. Although if Matthew Finlan is listening to this podcast, I apologize to him in advance for saying it about him. But my joke around around our house is always, if anything happens to my husband, Josh, um, and David, you know Matthew Finland, um, he's still single as far as I know. We're just going to move him in. You know, if my husband <laughs> dies, we're going to move move Matthew Finland in because here's Hearts the deal. Hearts are breaking right now. You know how many single guys are I'm wishing like, no, they were I'm that like, guy? Here's the deal. Hearts Matthew Finland is an Episcopal priest and he has a beard. We could move him into the house and no one would know the difference. And I will never have to date. Like that's so like the pause. whole goal for me. So anyway, I'm, I, I would do that to never have to date. Like when I hear people talk about dating, I'm like, I have a plan B. Like if something happens to Josh, God forbid, I have a plan B because I'm never going to date. I mean, I, you're, you're a true romantic. I mean, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's just crazy out there. I mean, this is, this is so nuts i saw pieces of this in college like i saw this happening i saw pieces of this in college i mean it it seemed like this whole narrative about women having more control and dating and um and some online stuff had started by then and i just felt like i just barely escaped it i just barely missed it josh my husband is um he's five years older than i am and I even, I mean, sort of this reflection about how temporary dating is and how um, fragile it is when you're dating someone. I definitely remember experiencing that um, in my early 20s. And Josh and I were on like our second date. And I was like, so like, we need to have a talk about whether or not this is like a thing. And he was you like, you DTR'd on date two? Yeah. And he, but he was like, my husband looked at me and he's like, we need, are you serious? Like, he's like, this is a thing. Like, does that need to be defined for you? Like, so I've, I almost felt like we were coming from two different like worlds uh, because I had, I was starting to see this world of like, how is this, where is this headed? How, you know, anyway. So, so you were betrothed at date two. Yeah. I mean, Josh and I were looking at, we were looking was at there a ritual? Rings was like, it, within like what eight if, weeks of what meeting. If, do you know, like the, you know how the, the whole promise ring thing, like what if oh, we yeah. started a betrothal movement where, and the, the proposal was the guy gives at day two or three, gives the woman his cargo shorts and just says, you can burn these. No, I'm like the worst. I've been at parties recently. Like I was at this party and it was a bunch of women my age. And one of them was standing there and she's like, well, I just don't know. Like we've been together for six months. His jokes aren't that funny. And like in front of everyone, I'm like, just marry him. Like, just marry him. Like, what are you doing? Like, I'm I'm not fun to have at those events, but it, you know I don't know just just get, Sarah, it's- I I have never been to an event at least in recent memory that I could think would not be more fun with you there. So, <laughs> so that's a prop. It's you're going generous. to the wrong you're going to the wrong events, sweetheart. It's uh, uh, very generous, but yeah, just get married, man. It's it's too wild out there. Yeah. I love dating. I thought dating was fun. Oh god. 
Why? Well, I had fun dating dating my wife, but it was yeah. There was well, a huge I, amount I had of the anxiety. Most fun dating my wife, but I, I mean, hope I, so, guys. That's I, right I thing I, to say. I didn't have a bad time <laughs> before that. Um, there's this great article um, that I think I wrote about it a couple months ago called "Love and Its Discontents: Irony, Reason, and Romance" by a woman named Eva Eluz. She is this is the best theory uh, field ever. Her field is the sociology of emotion. So she is just like amazing. But she says that the pre-modern actor. So she's thinking about she's comparing pre-modern courtship to to modern courtship. She says, two main differences in the modern situation strike even the casual observer. The pre-modern actor looking for a mate seems a simpleton in comparison with today's actors, who from adolescence to adulthood develop an elaborate set of criteria for the selection of a mate. Such criteria criteria are not only social and educational, but also physical, sexual, and perhaps most of all, emotional. Psychology, internet technology, and the logic of of the capitalist market Applied to mate selection have contributed to create a self-conscious, manipulable personality who uses an increasingly refined and wide number of criteria, presumably conducive to greater compatibility. Psychology in particular has greatly contributed to defining defining persons as sets of psychological and emotional attributes themselves submitted to the imperative of compatibility. Thus what what has become a hyper-cognized rational method of selecting a mate goes hand in hand with the expectation expectation that love provide authentic, unmediated emotional experience. Mm. Truer words, my friends, never spoken by Miss Eluz, who I'm sure is probably a great dating conversationalist because she's in sociology of emotions. I mean, mm. who wouldn't want to talk to that person? Yeah, we're, we're, look, we're dating uh, constructs rather than actual people. The other thing this made me think of, and hat tip to our production assistant who's working his way up to associate producer David Peterson, who got me in the mail a hard copy. Well, it's a, they're all hard copy, but Robert Jensen's Theology and Outline. So this morning I was reading it, and it, this is, sounds weird in connection with dating, but uh, Jensen is talking about the threats to the church. And he said, the great prophet of one form of nihilism was Frederick Nietzsche. But next in line is the greatest and most evil philosopher of the 20th century. That's just great, and I wish it was my title. Martin Heidegger. Mm. He, defined, he defined authentic existence as being towards death. And when in a little book entitled Introduction to Metaphysics, he posed the question, why is there anything at all? Why not just nothing? The answer he gave was, so that there should be someone to ask, why is there anything at all? Why is there just nothing? I want to read that like Seinfeld. Why is there anything at all? Why is there just nothing? <laughs> then at the end of the last century, we had Jacques Derrida. He asked, what makes language work? His answer was roughly that it is the interior or syntactic relationship among the word within a language that makes the la- that language work. His answer was not novel. The conclusion he drew from it, however, was Derrida said that one can never refer to what is real. If I say cow and you ask what a cow is, how do I answer? I give more language. Derrida's point was that the attachment of what we say to reality is always, as he put it, deferred. You never actually get to the attachment. You are just going round and round and round within whatever language you are speaking. And, and he talks about that's a huge threat to the church, that we never get to the attachment, that we get lost in liturgical games or dogmatic games or activist games. And, and that's what we're all just, as your father would say, David, we're all just looking for love. And so sometimes, <laughs> yeah. though, the irony is the self-sabotage and defeat we do because we want attachment. And yet we have anxiety that the attachment will you know, not meet our expectations. I don't want to belabor this, but I, there's a comedian and it's way it's like I would have never posted on anything social media because it was 
there's so much language, but, and I love some expletives, but there was a lot of language, but she's a young woman. She's in her twenties and she's talking about dating and she's talking about why it's so impossible. And she said that what happens is two young people go on a date and the guy may say to her, you know, I really like you. And she'll text her friends. He's so creepy. (laughs) And then she may call him the next day and um, he'll look up at his friends and say, or she'll text him, right? Not call him. She'll text him. And he'll look up at his friends and say, "Um, oh my gosh, she's texting me. She's crazy. And this is the narrative of dating right now. And I I mean, I sent that to my brother, who's who's a great barometer for sort of what people are doing in their 20s right now. And he said, this is 100% accurate. This is, and so what is is it that, what is happening? Um, Not only be in this cycle of dating, but also to, um, to, to criticize the very thing that you're participating in. I mean, it's just very strange. So yeah. again, Matthew Fenlon is my plan B. Ladies, if you're married, get a plan B. If something happens to your husband, God forbid. Can we get know. a plan B too? Yeah. Sorry. I mean, get, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Guys are growing. I, I have no plan B. There are a lot of Episcopal I, priests with beards. So I have, a, I have a lot of options. I just want to say. <laughs> if, some, if something happens to Lindy, I'm going to sit here and never shower again. And I will just broadcast. That's all Scott's day. plan B. See? That's my Every- plan B. Yeah, I have a plan B. <laughs> Depression and loneliness. I mean, it's interesting. I think whatever the answer is, God in the midst of it, I think, looks like John Cusack can say anything. I yeah. Mean, with like the, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world is John Cusack outside her window with a boombox. Mm. There you go. Yeah. Finally, you get sick of being beat up and you want you want the nice guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or the nice girl. Or the nice, or the nice God. Or the nice God. <laughs> Just period. Yeah. Thank you, my friends. Making the podcast great again. Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, drop over to iTunes and give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. Even share it with a friend on social media. We exist because of the generosity, support, and enthusiasm of you, our listeners. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Thanks a lot. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.